Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Max Anderson. And this week we're going to be delighting ourselves with the sounds of the music of Eric Zahn. It's only a few days past that we attended Concrete Cow. Yeah, and a fine day it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of, one of the, my best experiences at the cow so far. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was kind of a weird one for me because I had a chest infection. I decided that for the first time in years, I wasn't going to run games at a convention. And so, you know, I just sat there and either played or watched and it was fantastic. See what fun you can have playing games, Scott. Yeah, I know. It's, it just never occurred to me before as something that you could actually do at a convention. I remember the days when you did used to play. Yeah, but that was like 10 years ago, Paul. Well, yeah. Well, I do remember 10 years ago, Scott, <laughs> as amazing as that may be. I was going to say, it's also rare to see you back in the GM seat these days as well. Yeah, I ran a game on the Saturday morning. I ran uh, a game that I wanted to run for a long time, uh, or wanted to write for a long time, which is kind of a Moby Dick, Call of Cthulhu kind of game. And it's something that I've discussed in the past, but never kind of managed to pull together, but I don't know, it seemed to work okay, so uh, I ran that Saturday morning. And that's going to end up as one of the vignettes in The Poison Tree, isn't it? Yeah, in, in the campaign that we're working on, The Poison Tree, so that'll be a kind of a self-contained uh, little section in there. What about yourself, Matt? What were you running? I ran Lamentations of the Flame Princess in the morning, Witch Hunting Escapades as the Matthew Hopkins franchise going around <laughs> North Norfolk. That was a lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> and then in the afternoon, ran some World Walker Through the Cold War which uh, Scott sat in on and very much got me the impression that I was sat there in front of a jury's panel. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like I should have been holding up signs giving you a score at the end. <laughs> uh, no, that, that, that session re went really, really well. It did, yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of self-sacrifice, we had a lot of argument and moral ambiguity. Yeah, some stuff, the players really got their teeth into that. Cool. Yeah. And um, in the evening, did you do anything in the evening? Uh, slept. Because I had, to okay. wake, I had to wake up early and uh, give Tiff a ride to work the next morning at six o'clock. <laughs> Twitch. Well, I, I had a trip to the smoke shack, and uh, Mike ordered the hot wings with hot sauce. So no, wouldn't bother you, Matt. No. Apart I thought from the bone. I, I thought yeah. I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking of my uh, of my good wife Tiff, um, this is something she spotted online a little while ago that I thought. Um, given certain events that have happened in games that we've played with Paul before, it would be a gift too good to pass up. So I have a little something for uh, for both of you. Oh, okay. This is a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have in my hand a bag which I does. He has a cloth to... bag. Yeah, which he's, is uh, he's... laden with something. Yeah. I don't know what. He, which... he is reaching into it in the most sinister manner. Uh, you know, just incompetent manner. I think. That's... <laughs> <laughs> what does no, he have? You, you, got... you were using your left hand there for a moment, so it was sinister. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, Always the words. I've got one of these. Um, I've got my own one of these at home, admittedly. Um, but first of all, you'll need one of these. Okay. Uh, he's handed Scott a, a glass mug. Yep. And I've got one as well. Is yep. this space made? No, 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 no. Something far more terrifying. Um, <laughs> well, I think okay. we may. I think we may have mentioned it Moon on juice. the pod, on the pod, no um, on the podcast before about a certain experience that all three of us were involved in when playing Beyond the Mountains of Madness that Paul decided to um, take an argument with a sloth. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, we've got the cuddly sloth. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so you've liquidised the, the sloth there. for us? No, I've got a sloth tea, uh, tea diffuser. What the <laughs> hell? <laughs> what Excellent. Oh, thank you. Oh, wow, well, it's <laughs> like is... a little sloth. 
<laughs> it's a little sloth that hangs over the side of your cup and um, you put the tea in it, it's got all little holes in its tummy that diffuses out of. Yeah, so it looks so, like it's peeing into your mug. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a sloth that it excretes tea. It With doesn't bit... look like it's peeing. It's not coming out of its back end. It's oh, I, of... I've got I, some pictures seen... I can show you later where I've, where I've used mine at home to test it. And it's like little trails of tea coming out of the thing. <laughs> just, just look at the picture on the side of it with that little yellow droplet hanging oh, down yeah. off it. It's hanging <laughs> off its leg. With, with a big... I like his, his subtle grin like, hey, I've just pissed in your car. <laughs> Oh, that is yeah, pretty cool. That's exactly the same look as you get when you do that, Matt. Hey. <laughs> I'm going to get out and have a look. Oh, it's all rubbery. Yeah, yeah, he's flexible. Oops. He's flexible. <laughs> that is very cool. Thank you very much, Matt. Yes, thank you. All right. This started off in Mountain, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, where we had a, a slight break. Where was it that we was it in South the Panama, America? The Panama somewhere? Canal. Yeah, and we decided, oh, we'll you know we'll climb off the ship and do a bit of hunting. And as it is with Call of Cthulhu, a few rolls later, I'm trying to shoot a sloth out of the tree, and uh, it, it gets I, a critical I mean, hit on you on the way down, if I remember right. Yeah, <laughs> and, like gores me and virtually kills me. <laughs> Robin's like, oh, what damage is a sloth going to do? Oh, maybe D8. <laughs> I've got one or two hit points left. But before we get away completely from the idea of Concrete Cow, it was really good to see some of you there. We got to meet a couple of listeners we hadn't met in person before, Chris Glue and, and Dave Garwood, and it was really good meeting you guys, and a few familiar faces. And thank you especially to Anthony Lee Dudley for the, the fantastic laundry game he ran in the morning. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, Chris and Dave also played in my Lamentations game in the morning as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Didn't manage to kill them, but hey, came close. <laughs> Did he kill the characters, though? Moving on. On the other bit of news is in the last week, or at least at the time of recording, the last week, uh, we have released another book that we all collaborated on. Well, when I say we, I mean Cubicle 7 has released another book that the three of us collaborated on uh, with a few other people, and that's World War Cthulhu London. Hooray! Uh, yeah. So this is the fairly sizable volume is sort of a crossover between the World War Cthulhu line and the Cthulhu Britannica line and it covers playing Call of Cthulhu during the London Blitz primarily or at least you know in London throughout the Second World War but the main focus of it is during the Blitz. It's a fairly dark grim horrible time even before you add the mythos. I personally am really happy with the way it came out. Yeah it's, it looks like a really beautiful looking tome. It's like 192 pages in the end. Yeah. So it'll be a nice hardback volume to put on the shelf. And, of course, you can use this for Dad's Army. Is that right, Scott? That's the real purpose, isn't Yeah, it? That, that, that was the real secret purpose behind doing this. Yeah. You're doomed. You're all doomed. <laughs> Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Haster? <laughs> Before we launch into our discussion of the music of Eric let's have a look at our Lovecraftian word of the um, uh, week. Yes. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week we are looking at uncanny. An adjective. Having or seeming to have a supernatural or inexplicable basis. Or two, mysterious. No shit, Sherlock. Arousing fear or dread. I don't think no shit Sherlock was part of the dictionary definition, but you may have a different dictionary than I have. <laughs> it, just, it just seemed almost redundant. It's uh, 
But yeah, this is a very Lovecraftian word. In fact, it's so Lovecraftian, I'm really surprised we haven't done it before. According to the notes, 38 times Lovecraft used it. So uh, that's quite a few uh, mentions of this word. This didn't actually strike me as being very Lovecraftian when I saw the the name choice. Actually, if anything, it sprung to me more like Agatha Christie or some other period writer. Hmm. It didn't seem to be, I don't know, just didn't seem very Lovecraftian. I would tend to agree, Matt, but looking at the definition again, having or seeming to have a supernatural or inexplicable basis, well, that's, that, that fits perfectly, mm-hmm. and mysterious, arousing fear or dread. Because I would have thought uncanny, which, which again works very well. Well, I thought uncanny just meant a bit, you know, uh, a bit surprising, a bit odd. Yeah, I, I would have thought the definition being mm. odd. Whereas yeah. the definition is actually puts it more into uh, Lovecraftian territory. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty much a synonym for Eldritch, which is about as Lovecraftian as you get. But anyway, before we lose ourselves in synonyms, let's actually take a look at the way Lovecraft used the word uncanny. From the moon bog, their waving, translucent arms, guided by the detestable piping of those unseen flutes, beckoned in uncanny rhythm to a throng of lurching labourers who followed dog-like with blind, brainless, floundering steps as if dragged by a clumsy but resistless demon will. And from the lurking fear... It was acutely uncanny, even when frightful and uncanny things were common, to encounter so blankly clueless a scene after such overwhelming occurrences and we moved about beneath the leaden, darkening sky with that tragic directionless zeal which results from a combined sense of futility and necessity of action. And from the festival. Out of the unimaginable blackness beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame. Out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncanny, unheard and unsuspected. There flopped rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid, winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. And finally, we have a special, special inclusion here, which Paul has to read for us. I've done my bit. No, no, no. Yeah, I think you'll find on the next page there is another special excerpt just for you, Paul. Just for you. I can't see that on my printout anyway. Um, Don't make me read it to you, Paul. Don't make me read it to you. Have I got to read this? Okay. (laughs) From the shadow of Rinsmouth. I'm not sure I can do this. This is is, is too abhorrent and sanity blasting. As for business, the abundance of fish... (laughs) (laughs) Certainly almost uncanny, but the natives were taking less and less advantage of it. In fact, they took so less advantage it got cut from the rule book. Yep, here we have it, the original source of attract fish. It doesn't mention attract at all. (laughs) This is where it comes from, Paul. This is where it comes from. Yeah, it's obviously some bastardisation of it, though. It's, It's not... It doesn't say they were using magic. It says it was uncanny, almost uncanny. Almost uncanny. Keep but telling yourself uncanny. that. That yeah. sounds like someone trying to rationalise a sand loss. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, we, we know you've succeeded in your idea role there, Paul. 
the microphone doesn't pick him up, just his head <laughs> solemnly shaking. <laughs> <laughs> For our main topic, the music of Eric Zahn. Well, let's start off with a little look at the background of the story. So Lovecraft wrote this apparently in December 1921. It was first published in the National Amateur in March 1922 and then reprinted in Weird Tales in May 1925. It was also one of the uh, few stories to actually see publication in book form during Lovecraft's life. It was anthologised in Dashiell Hammett's 1931 book, Creeps by Night. But also, perhaps even more bizarrely, it was printed in the Evening Standard in London on the 24th of October 1932. One that, might say that's almost uncanny. Mm. That's a weird one, isn't it? So they must have just featured little short stories and sourced them from... Well, from, from the pulps and anthologies yeah. and so on. Yeah. But yeah, yes. Lovecraft was published in the Evening Standard. Also, this is probably the shortest Lovecraft story we've discussed in the podcast. I mean, most of the other ones we've talked about have been some of his major long works. This is a mere 3,500 words long. So, yeah, this is really quite short, even by Lovecraft standards. Yeah, I mean, this is a good one. If you haven't read any Lovecraft before and you want to pick this up and read it, you can do so in, you know, I don't know, you comfortably read it in half an hour. It took me more than half an hour. <laughs> yeah, then... if, if you're not mad, it'll take you half an hour to read. <laughs> and as with a number of Lovecraft stories, it does have quite a memorable opening line. I have examined maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue d'Orsay. As with many of the other Lovecraft stories we've looked at, he often starts with this opening line about, you know, uh, I put seven shots into the guy and, you know, he was still standing in, in Herbert West, I think, or um, something dreadful is going to happen. And with this one, it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly gentle thing, but it's the fact that there's this place that he refers to and he's never been able to find it again. So immediately we're sort of set off into a mystery, something very strange we know is going to happen. And this unnamed narrator, yeah, fairly typically for Lovecraft, is wandering around the city trying to find this place where he once lived, this rather grotty boarding house on the Rue de Soy. Now, we're never actually told the city in which this occurs. I, I've seen speculation from various scholars that it might be Geneva, that it might be Montreal, but the most likely guess is Paris. Lovecraft did actually say something about this himself, or at least not specifically relating to this story. But in the general context, there, there's a line from Lovecraft, a biography, uh, which was, when somebody asked Lovecraft, who had never been abroad, how he described the atmosphere of Paris so well, uh, he had said that he had indeed been there, in a dream, in company with Poe. This kind of implies then the Rue d'Orsay is actually somewhere in the dreamlands. Uh, yeah, which, Almost. which would kind of explain why it disappears the way it does. Well, yeah. I just kind of look at it as like a Parisian version of Mornington Crescent. <laughs> yeah, he just might turn up in another part of the city every so often. So he describes how it was a very odd environment. He describes how there's this greenish-grey vegetation, which kind of seems to, to um, resonate with the colour out of space, and that the inhabitants were all very old. And 
you were talking about Rob Aikman earlier. This kind of put me in mind of the hospice, actually, in this, this strange mm. old place uh, with his old inhabitants, and he doesn't really know quite how he got there or how he got away from there. Um, this kind of place that's slightly removed from reality. Yeah, it's got a dreamlike atmosphere. You know, the the laws of physics or the laws of reality don't necessarily seem to apply there, and it's filled with very strange people. Mm. He's a he's a student of metaphysics, of course. <laughs> uh, he's in his final year, I think. He's uh, he's in debt and he's been evicted from several places previously. The landlord is referred to as the paralytic Blando. God, what a description. Oh, just with that one adjective, the picture that paints. Now, I imagine Lovecraft was using paralytic in the terms that, you know, he probably didn't have the full use of his body or limbs. But, yeah, certainly to a British reader, that perhaps paints a slightly different picture. <laughs> so he's been drinking far too much vino. <laughs> After our previous episode of Inland Empire, um, it just set me to thinking that he might well use the phrase... I have this damned landlord. <laughs> <laughs> this house is up a steep hill um, and it's described. he describes the houses as kind of leaning together and almost touching at the top like one might see in old cities like York or perhaps Paris. Um, but he also says, which, which caught my eye, he said this place is five stories high, which mm. seems extremely tall for those kind of old-fashioned buildings to be. I mean, I can't think of a... A property in Buckingham in the modern day, which is five stories high. Yeah, and considering this is you know, late 19th, early 20th century, that's a big building. Yeah, that's really tall. Yeah, the, I, I kept thinking of the Tudor buildings, you know, the, the kind of time around the uh, Fire of London, where yeah. the, uh, the stories were above were slightly, slightly larger than the one below. Yes. And even then, I can't think of any of them going more than three. No, that's maybe, how I was picturing it, yeah. yeah. Maybe four if you included an attic window, but... Yeah, no, that's that's that is unusually tall. But to be fair, this building is taller than any of the buildings around it. Mm. I mean, that, that is actually one of the selling points that the the top floor, which we discover is occupied by Eric Sand, but we'll get to that in a moment. That the top floor has a window which should command a majestic view of the city. Now, whether anyone gets to see that view, well, well, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. There's also he mentions that this this whole street is divided off by a wall, almost like it's cased off from the rest of the city by this structure that surrounds the yeah. Uh, surrounds I'm, the I'm buildings. kind of picturing you go up the street and there's this this big old house that he lodges in, and then there's a wall at the end of the street, and you can't see over it unless you were kind of high up in this house. Mm. Then you'd be able to look out over the wall. So he takes up lodging in the old house on the Rue d'Orsay, and he we learn that. There's an old German man staying in the house in the top uh, room. And we're not told that he's called Eric Zahn. We're told that who signs his name, Eric Zahn, which I thought was a, even that is left kind of. Is that really true? I don't know why that phrase is used other than that. Well, it's well for a start indicating the fact that he's a mute. Of course. Right. Yes, that didn't occur to me. Good point. But yes, again, we don't discover that for a little bit. But uh, yeah, our narrator hears this strange music coming from upstairs. Uh, He's aware that there is this old man who lives up on the top floor, but the music the old man plays is like nothing he's ever heard before. Uh, It's it's eerie, it's haunting, it's uncanny. (laughs) And um, so, of course, the narrator goes up uh, and decides to introduce himself. He doesn't introduce himself to us, of course, but he does introduce himself <laughs> yes. to Zahn. 
Uh, and he goes in and Zahn plays him some music, doesn't he? But he plays him uh, the kind of mundane music that uh, we, we know that Zahn plays at a local theatre in the evenings. And uh, he plays some of that. But then our narrator asks, you know, can you play some of that, that other stuff that you I, well, I overheard you playing? Yeah, then, then he actually whistles some of it to Zahn. Mm-hmm. And Zahn is not happy about this. Well, things escalate because I, after our narrator has committed that faux pas, he then does something even more unpardonable, which is he goes over and he makes to open the curtains. Oh, yes, that look out over the um, yeah. that look out over this wall. Yeah, so I mean, as we've described, Zahn is on the top floor, so he should have this majestic view out over the city. But for some reason, in this barren little room of his, I mean, the, the room is described as being this kind of dusty boarded room with uh, just a few pieces of furniture, music stand, you know, a couple of chairs, a desk, but but this large, pretty well empty room, and it's dominated by this huge window that is kept curtained. You know, the narrator, you know, having already stuck his foot in it to some extent, goes over and decides that he is going to open the curtains and see this wonderful view out over the city. Zahn loses his shit. It does seem almost inexplicable why he should have that reaction to begin with, that you just think it's a window, it's it's got a view, there shouldn't be anything that's odd in his, in his action. But no, he does, he almost exponentially escalates. Oh yeah, yeah he, he I mean, physically he, grabs him, doesn't he, yeah. and pulls him away from the window. Yeah, but then, you know, Zahn almost immediately, you know, is apologetic about this. You know, as we've said before, he's mute, he can't speak. But he then decides to write an apology to the narrator in very broken French. Uh, he's got some, some paper and a pen uh, on his desk. He apologises for disturbing the narrator with his music and recommends that the narrator take a room lower down in the yes. property, uh, perhaps a, a, a nicer room, and that he, Eric Zahn, will cover the difference in the rent. The following day, the, the landlord comes to our narrator and uh, he moves him down, I think, a couple of floors. So mm-hmm. our narrator can no longer hear the, uh, the the music being played. Until he creeps up the stairs and starts to listen to it again. As you would. As, as yeah. any good investigator would do. <laughs> And of course, you know, this goes on for a bit, but things seem a bit out of kilter, even by this, this weird music that Zahn's been playing. And so, you know, the narrator, hearing this, knocks on the door and goes in and intrudes again. Yeah, I'll, I'll just draw a point here. that The weeks pass here is, is a passing reference, but if this were a game, this would be like later that evening, it'd be banging on the door and <laughs> trying to get in there all the next day. But in the story, it's, yeah, it's weeks of time have gone by during this, uh, whilst this is happening. And there are times when the narrator thinks that he can not just hear Zahn playing, but also another player playing. Mm. And one thing we haven't touched upon so far is the instrument that Zan plays. Now, it's interesting, I mean, if you see almost any adaptation of the music of Eric Zan or references in role-playing games, uh, you'll see uh, him playing the violin. Hmm. Um, except it's not a violin in the I've, story. I've done some research into this. Yeah. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of different accounts of what it was, but apparently, uh, my research, it was a Stratocaster. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it a, was. A, a Fender what? Strat. A Fender Strat. <laughs> Which is? Right. For fuck's sake, man. <laughs> what is wrong with you, man? It's what Jimi Hendrix played. What, an electric guitar? Yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. I'm pretty sure. Is that right, Scott? It is, yeah. It's canon. 
Oh, Matt, you're okay. eyeing us like you don't believe this. You should be able to hear Matt's eyebrows <laughs> being recorded at the moment. What I'd like to think it is, there's a particular Stratocaster that Dweezil Zappa plays, which is the one that Jimi Hendrix set fire to at the Miami Music Festival in the late 60s. He used to squirt lighter fuel on it and actually set fire to it on the stage. Oh, yeah, he, he only pretended to squirt lighter fluid on it. He actually used it to summon a fire vampire. <laughs> well, that could well be it. This, this is even more eldritch then. Because then that burnt guitar, Frank Zappa bought it and restored it and now Frank Zappa's son, Dweezil, owns this guitar. So this is a guitar that was burnt on stage by Jimi Hendrix and then played on stage by Frank Zappa. Well, it must be, you know, that must be a major charge in there. <laughs> so if there were a modern-day Eric Zahn, that's what I'd like to think he was playing. But maybe maybe that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, if you go by the the, the unimportant details in Lovecraft's story, <laughs> what he actually plays is a viol. Unimportant details. <laughs> And yeah. this is a word that it's a weird word, viol, isn't it? Because I've heard of viola, that's like a big violin. I've heard of violin, obviously, we've all heard of that. But a viol is? It's kind of, from what I understand, I've never actually seen one myself, but having looked it up, apparently it's like a cello, only slightly smaller. I think it's easy yeah. to envisage somebody playing violin madly, you know, because it, you can kind of jig around and move around with it more. Whereas with a cello, you're kind of sat more statically. Yeah. If, so it's if, more, perhaps more expressive. Yeah, yeah. You could just really kind of squirm around like a dog with worms, but that's about it. Anyway, getting back to the story. So Zan lets uh, our narrator in once more uh, and then decides to explain to him exactly what's going on. So he sits down at his desk again and starts writing feverishly, writing this lengthy explanation on many, many pages. And our narrator is sitting there, or standing there, patiently. For an hour well, or more. Yeah, while well, yeah. well, well, Zan just, you know, scrolls and scrolls and scrolls. And, of course, our narrator doesn't, you know, <laughs> doesn't think to sort of pick up the pages that Zan's finished re writing and read those. He's just waiting for the whole thing to be finished. <laughs> Yeah, now I think of it, that is... <laughs> I'm, like... I'm not going to read a finished page or I'll wait till it's all completed. Yeah. yeah. Well, you might need to revise it or something. Yeah. <laughs> Before he can finish, things go wrong. Yet when I looked from that highest of all gable windows, looked while the candles sputtered and the insane vial howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below and no friendly lights gleaming from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space illimitable. Unimagined space alive with motion and music, and having no semblance of anything on Earth. Now this is, I think, a fairly early example in Lovecraft's work of him really going for cosmic horror. I, a lot of the stuff that he'd written up until this stage was very gothic. Uh, yeah, he he was at this stage coming out from under the influence of Poe, I think. And yeah, this is one of the few, well, one of the early passages, I think, that is you know truly Lovecraft. So the music from outside, or, or the sound from outside, frightens Zahn, and he leaps up and grabs his viol and starts playing, doesn't he, madly? Yeah, almost uh, like a counter-melody, that's the way I envisioned it, something to keep back what was on the other side. Yeah, that's the impression I get. He's kind of trying to... It's almost like he's 
forced to play or he's playing to block it out or to to accompany it and to pacify it somehow. It's never fully explained. No. And, and that is one of the real strengths of the story. If it Lovecraft had done what he did in so many other stories and sort of at the end sort of said that this is why he was doing it, I think it would kill almost everything that's special about this story. It, it is that kind of Aikman ambiguity that really, really it's placed to that strength. The, the candles blow out. The papers that, that Zahn's just written his whole bloody life story on are picked up by the wind and, and blown out of the window. Great. And, um, and so our narrator is kind of floundering around in the darkness and he fumbles around and he's, he's struck by the bow from the vial. And so he reaches out and there's, there's a chair and he kind of fumbles up and, and there's Zahn. He can feel Zahn and he sort of runs his hand up and there's Zahn's ear but... He's cold, cold and dead, but somehow still playing. And, yeah, the narrator, like any good Lovecraft narrator in this situation, freaks the fuck out and runs. Yeah, I mean, he fails his sanity roll at that point and flees the building. And maybe, you know, as, as a result of uh, insanity, he's never able to find the place again. You know, he's, yeah. it's, it's all kind of mushed up in his, in his memory and, and he's totally misplaced it um, and, you know, he's never able to find it again. Yeah, maybe, maybe the name of the street was actually something completely different. Maybe it was somewhere else. Maybe it never quite existed the way he thought. It's interesting, there was um, a post on an old Usenet thread from Donkeys years ago Elias Karolopoulos uh, on the Alt Horror uh, Cthulhu uh, Usenet news group posted this little bit. It seems as if Lovecraft intended to incorporate the French word soy, uh, which means threshold in the name of the street. Orsoy now then becomes orsoy, which means at the threshold. Again, quite ominous. Yeah, the street at the threshold. Mm. And yeah, I mean, whether or not that was Lovecraft's intention, it certainly fits. And, you know, if you take the idea that you know, the, the narrator has rearranged all these details in his head afterwards, then, you know, to, to suddenly come up with, oh, yes, of course, it was the street at the threshold. That must be the name of it. And he's going around telling that to everyone. Mm. Yeah. It, uh, it gives yeah. a whole new perspective on that wall as well, that maybe it's what is the wall? Is it a physical wall or is it just a barrier? Mm. I listened to the HP Lovecraft literary podcast earlier and Chad Pfeiffer made a, a really interesting point, I thought, about how this differs from quite a lot of other Lovecraft stories. Something you brought up earlier, Scott, about how Lovecraft doesn't tell us everything in here as he often does in his stories. And that's that often Lovecraft's uh, narrators are the mad person in the attic <laughs> writing their journal that's what we read we read their account so typically the story we would read would be those papers that blew out of the window which would explain Zahn's stories and how his his doom is is coming to him and you know how it's getting worse and worse and the hand at the window you know that kind of thing <laughs> but in this Lovecraft's chosen to put the narrator as you know another layer down you know a, a, a kind of a, a removed from that just a, as a witness to all this kind of going on i mean that sort of raises some interesting questions for me i agree with matt this is one of my favorite lovecraft stories because of the fact that all this stuff isn't explained the mysteries that it leaves and the feelings that it leaves within me are much more intense than i get from most lovecraft stories now 
if Lovecraft had taken this approach in more of his stories, had laid down less of the of the details, of, you know, of the background of what was going on, and and left more of an air of mystery in there, they might have been, in many respects, stronger stories. Mm. But would we still be talking about Lovecraft to the same extent these days? Mm. I mean, certainly, you know, there, there's possibly a good reason why the best-selling you know, horror role-playing game is an H.P. Lovecraft one and not, say, a Robert Aikman one. Because as much as I love Robert Aikman's stories, you can't really kind of extract a canon from those that you can turn into the background for a role-playing game. Yeah, you needed to have a quantifiable, very well-described monster, because even with the thinking of the beastery in the Cthulhu rulebook, it uses quotes where it describes those very um, now iconic monsters. Mm. And the fact that the story is kind of loosely linked together to form this, you know, in inverted commas, Cthulhu mythos. Um, so they're not just wholly disparate stories. There's some, you know, overlaps, albeit sometimes quite tangential. And and if you compare it to, for example, another story we've discussed, uh, The Shadow Out of Time, Lovecraft's favourite of his own stories, I mean, that goes into a hell of a lot of detail about the background of the great race and their history and... Even their description. Yeah, but but not just that, but, you know, the, the era in which they lived in their cities and their enemies and where they came from in the first place. And at the end of it, there are very few mysteries left to us. Uh, relating to the great race and you know that for a role-playing game writer is an absolute gold mine you can go in there and you can grab any one of you know a hundred different gem-like details embedded in that story and do things with them on the other hand there is no real sense of mystery left at the end of it i mean there is a little bit around the flying polyps and and that that stuff at the end of the story but about the great race themselves they're reduced to something very weird, very strange, but at the same time, disappointingly explicable. I think it has a sense of wonder about them. Whilst he gives us quite a lot to work with, there's still quite a lot to, to fill in yourselves, I think. Um, you know, about what might happen to them, you know, after uh, the event. Um, oh, I mean, you can certainly extrapolate from what's yeah, in there. Yeah. But I mean, that's not the same as there being mysteries about their true no. nature. If The Shadow of Time had been written in the style of this, where, you know, let's say Peasley had had all these weird experiences and just sort of pieced together or had little glimpses of what had happened and the pieces never quite fitted together and, you know, drove himself more and more mad because he couldn't make them fit together i think that would be a much more terrifying story and again you could possibly extrapolate little bits of it through hints and come up with your own theory but it would be a very different story yeah i guess there's a scale here and i guess this story is fairly towards one end of, of totally unexplained and at the other end perhaps we've got the shadow out of time but i mean there's a lot of stories on that scale so i mean i'd say another story did color out of space there's a lot of unexplained stuff in there you know what was we we couldn't really even tell was it a sentient creature was it just some kind of weird effect i think generally he strikes a good balance between giving you some explanation but not necessarily explaining everything i mean certainly not everything is tied up is it generally no even though Lovecraft didn't explain everything in the story itself, um, going back to the comment that we made about the um, the Call of Cthulhu rulebook and having a good beastry of the stuff that has been explained, um, this is something that Chaosium in the um, in one of their publications, Malleus Monstorum, um, have given an explanation as to what could have been beyond that window. But we'll talk about that in a bit. 
But before we do that, let's take a look at some of the adaptations there have been of the music of Eric San. I would think this one really lends itself to adaptations. It's got very limited settings. It's in a boarding house, largely in one bedroom. So that makes it easy to make, well, that makes it relatively straightforward to make a film or, or play of. Well, it makes it cheap to film. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's what I meant by easy. Cheap. <laughs> you don't have to worry too much about sets, do you? Yeah, and very few actors, very small cast. So um, IMDb lists some adaptations, mostly shorts, but then, you know, it's a pretty short story. Yeah, there have been at least eight versions of it shot so far. I personally have only actually seen one of them, uh, the one from the 1980s, which was a, a pretty faithful adaptation. The actual reveal about what was happening uh, with the you know, once the, the curtains move away was a bit different from what was described in the story, but you know, it's the, the limitations of, of making a low-budget film. And you know, I think despite that, it was very effective. The one I really want to see, which unfortunately, you know, it, it was put up on YouTube by the makers, but you know, it seems to be inaccessible at the moment, uh, is a very recent Korean short adaptation called The the Music of Joe Haija, which uh, seems to uh, have a sort of young female Eric Zahn in it. Given that Eric Zahn was playing some kind of crazy otherworldly music, then... It's it's no surprise that a lot of bands have taken this as inspiration for a name, for a, a track or an album. And looking on YouTube, there's quite a lot of people that have used this title. Quite a topical point to bring up, as I think it was actually Paul who found this on Indiegogo. Um, not a site I frequent, because he's not the big, the glorious Kickstarter, with his big capital K. Um, <laughs> but the Darkest of the Hillside Thickets are um, funding their fifth album. Yes, their fifth album, entitled Dukes of Alhazred. What a glorious title that is. It sure is. Yeah. So I think they're doing really well on it already. Uh, and they've got lots of um, rewards and so on that you can get, including, well, I think this one's already sold, but there was the option to play Cowbell um, <laughs> on the track. A couple of weeks ago, Torren Atkinson posted a question on, I don't know, Twitter or Facebook somewhere saying, uh, how much would you pay to play Cowbell on one of our tracks? Well, my response was, I'm really keen to see your album or hear your album, but I don't want to pay to listen to any track that I play cowbell on because my timing is is pretty terrible. Yeah, but it could have been worse, Paul. They could have asked you to sing. Yeah, no money would make that. No, no. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, thank you, Paul. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, new ducks to the hillside thickets. Uh, we've we've mentioned them before. If uh, if you get a chance to to hear some of their stuff, they're great. I mean, they're they're a really yeah. good uh, rock band. One place where Eric Zahn turns up in you know, perhaps a more modern context or modern fictional context uh, is in Charles Stross's Laundry series. Um, it's difficult to go into details without giving too many spoilers, but they, remember what I was saying earlier about how you know, Zahn tends to be associated with violins in, uh, in other adaptations? Well, this is a prime example. There is this kind of bone-white, uh, well, because it's actually made of bone, uh, violin with magical properties, which turns up throughout the Laundry series and is, is actually played by one of the characters in, in various ritualistic performances. Yes, it is credited as having been made by Eric San. It features prominently in, in the most recent novel, The Annihilation Score. There's an anthology uh, from 1976 called The Disciples of Cthulhu, 
And James Wade has a story in there called The Silence of Erica Zahn. Now, this is Eric Zahn's daughter? I believe so. I, I did read this story, but I read it something like 30 years ago, and I, I remember the title. <laughs> One of the uh, tomes that I tried to track down for a, quite a while, and seems even today seems to have quite a collectible appeal to it, is Pagan Publishing's The Golden Dawn source book which also has a couple of scenarios in there as well. One of them being La Musique de la Nuit. Um, it's by Scott Anualski, and it owes a lot to Phantom of the Opera, that it's yeah, very much, very much a homage to that, as well as being to the music of Eric Zahn, considering that Eric features as an NPC in the scenario. So quite, quite a prominent one as well, so it's not really a spoiler alert. And speaking of games, shall we move on to looking at how we can steal elements of the music of Erosan for our own games? Well, one of the first things I'd steal is, is something that we've talked about already, which is that wonderful description of the area around the Rue de Soy. I mean, just that weird neighbourhood, those old, decrepit buildings touching each other, the bridges between them, the strange undergrowth. And it's not sinister in the way that a lot of Lovecraft stuff is. It's more kind of weird and slightly seedy and a bit sad. The fact that you can sort of start out describing it as this, this old, archaic back street and full of these crumbling old buildings, but then you just throw in the occasional touch, like, you know, that, that undergrowth or the walls or the bridges between the buildings, and it slowly, you know, as you throw these details in, builds up a picture of somewhere that is very much out of the ordinary. I, as a keeper, one of the things I take from that is that, that slow accretion of slightly wrong details. Mm-hmm. I find myself more preoccupied with how you would get there and how you would, you know, how you would travel there and back. And I'm, I'm thinking maybe, you know, to get there, you know, somebody might kind of give you some indication of it or you might read about it in a book. But you ask anybody on the street or on the market or whatever, and they're like, no, I never heard of it, mate. So maybe you kind of got to wander around some back streets and actually kind of get lost so you don't really know where you are. You get lost in the hustle and bustle of the city and, and then and then you just kind of randomly find yourself you know, walking up and up this hill, and eventually, you know, there you are in the Rue de Say. It's an element which features another favourite game of mine, Heaven and Earth, that there's almost a slight nod to it, or even the convention in um, some map makers' tendencies, so that you could almost identify who was trying to steal your plans by putting fake streets on there. Hmm. Um, that Heaven and Earth hmm. has a street that occasionally people just so happen to wander up it, and that they describe that there's some odd things that have happened that they happen there. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. But this street just manifests every so often. I like to think maybe if if you all fail your navigation roll, then maybe you'll uh, <laughs> maybe you find yourself there. Or, or be the result of a failed pushed navigation. Roll. Oh, oh yes, mm. yeah. Particularly if you're insane. But yeah, it's interesting, and this almost drifts into some modern day urban fantasy tropes. I can see almost parallels there with, say, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. Mm. Just with, you know, these hidden parts of the city that, you know, you've got to be initiated in some way before you can see and interact with. Yeah, which ties in, with, again, with the, the dreamland, actually finding your way into that other other world. Or I'm thinking also of the, you know, the magical toy shop or magic shop that, that you know, just 
pops up and appears somewhere and then yeah. disappears, you know, we see in quite a lot of different stories. Yeah, or the magic theatre from Steppenwolf. Yeah, Dunson uses something similar with his um, Land of Dreams stories where there's there are physical gateways that lead to this old street that then leads to the Land of Dream. Mm. It strikes me that, you know, if you were to make your player characters play the role of the narrator in this story, you know, I don't think it'd go quite like this, would it? They'd be, they'd be downstairs. This is weird old guy upstairs playing some kind of weird music. Okay, well, we'll go up and talk to him. Okay, you go up and talk to him. And yeah, he kind of fobs you off. Okay, so we go down again. Next day, he goes out to the theatre playing. We know that. So they'd be breaking into his room and stuff. <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, oh, we look out the window. And they'd pull this to, apart within 24 hours, I think. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't take that long. No. <laughs> Most of the groups I played with, they'd just break in, club him, you know, pull the curtains <laughs> Throw open. him out the window. Yeah. Be- beat him to death with his own viol. Yeah. 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 Well, although, if they did that, this is where I mentioned previously that Chaosium had come up with a uh, method to explain what was behind the window. Um, they called it Trinembra as a outer god that serves the court of Azathoth, that it identifies musical geniuses that could go to join the court that keep Azathoth placated and quiet and asleep. It's... Re- pretty pretty horrendous in terms of what its stats are and what it can do it's it's sound you can't kill sound and even then it's got quite a quite a nasty sound loss attached to it you see i'm quite conflicted about this because on one hand that's really cool and i I like what they did with that on the other hand there's a part of me you know that's a fan of the story that resents it being reduced to something, you know, explicable, albeit in, in mm. weird terms like that. It, it seems to be almost an affront to the story to do that. It's like um, Joseph Pulver states when uh, someone tries to do an adaptation of The King in Yellow. You shouldn't do it. You should leave it completely undescribed. There should be that air of mystery because that's what the whole story hinges on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would very much agree this time, Scott, that I think trying to put a fixed vision of what's out of the window kind of lets the story down really it's that sense of wonder about what it is that really intrigues actually you know what i'm I'm not sure i do find myself actually wondering what it is i don't i'm not actually striving to think what is it i just have a sense of wonder about that that void outside Mm. and that's it really i'm quite taken with the idea of what zan's doing with his music as being some kind of magical ritual the the fact that the music itself that he's playing is somehow magical you know, the narrator describes it as being this this strange discordant uh, weird music the likes of which he's never heard he finds it you know fascinating maddening uh, and compelling but it's something other than just music it serves another purpose now, whether this is just some ritual to try to keep these you know, cosmic forces at bay or whether it's some kind of strange symbiotic relationship with whatever is beyond in the void, whatever it is, the music that he's playing is in some way transcending the mundane. It is creating something new, something magical that then reaches out beyond. But it's like he's compelled to play this music now. It mm. Almost it tortures him. Yes. playing it so it's almost as if he's made a kind of faustian pact and perhaps in younger days he had some special ability with his magic either to to purely just entertain people and captivate audiences be a great musician 
or perhaps some kind of ability, you know, like a bit like the Pied Piper of Hamelin, you know, he could his his music had a magical effect on people. But perhaps as he goes on playing and as he gets older, he's kind of using, he's burning up his debt here. Mm. And after a while, it just kind of turns on him and just starts to torture him. And now he's just kind of plagued by this nightmarish cacophony outside his window every night. And he's forced to, you know, to play wildly, kind of torturing himself as he does so. Yeah, he's not keeping it at bay to protect the world or to protect anything else. He's doing it to protect himself. He's kind of pushed it one too many times. Mm. It's also a really interesting approach to magic because, you know, in Call of Cthulhu, we tend to automatically associate magic with, you know, strange hand gestures, with blood rituals, with people muttering strange curses in alien languages, you know, all the usual tropes. But here is a man with a cello playing strange sounds, and this is magic. You know, the, the, this is, you know, a different way of, of casting a spell. And if that's the case, you know, what else, you know, what else is potentially magic? I think that you indeed moves your hands because he is moving his hands in bizarre uh, gestures while to actually physically play the viol. Maybe it's a cover. Maybe it isn't supposed to sound like, um, isn't going to sound like music at all as we would understand it. It's just that to hide the weird gestures he's making with his hands, he puts the instrument there so it doesn't look quite so odd. Yeah, either that or the sound it's it's creating is actually the magic. It's like the incantation. It's just not an incantation for a human voice. It's a response to the sound that's coming from outside the window, isn't it? That's coming from this void outside. With sound given form. Is he playing madly so he himself can't hear that music from outside? Is he compelled to accompany it? Or is this maybe another example of the sort of cargo cult aspect of the Cthulhu mythos? Where, you know, it's a human mind being faced with something cosmic, something beyond its understanding, and just trying to interact with it on the terms that he understands. One of the other features I quite like for, if we were, say, to use Zahn as an NPC, or even any mute NPC in a game, that, in a sense, the only people that are going to be doing, well, in a quite literal sense, the only people at the table that are going to be doing any talking are the investigators, as they question mm. the, um, question that NPC. If they start going down a line of questioning, they could suddenly have that little light bulb go on, and they're the ones who say, hang on a minute, is it? And then they are the ones that make make the statement. It's almost putting the um, putting a lot more power and reward to the investigators or the players in this in this instance because they're the ones who come up with the almost the response and then get a clarification from the npc who can little much do more than nod or try and write down but he can write statement. stuff down so true but it's when i've when i've experienced it a couple of times before it suddenly it gets the players thinking a lot more about what they're going to ask the person to respond with hmm so again, it does. It kind of pushes them towards that revelation that they say it before I do, as as the keeper that is when mm. I give them that revelation. And I think there's a, a further element with Zan particularly, which is as he's depicted in the story, he doesn't speak very good French. That introduces the possibility for you know perhaps misunderstandings, frustrations, you know all the little bits of ambiguity that we as a keeper like to stop just giving the players an info dump. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, again, nothing is going to kill any sense of mystery or horror uh, faster in a game than the NPC sort of saying, oh yeah, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. you, you want to try to find ways of muddying the water. And I think having a mute NPC who doesn't speak the same language as the other players, or at least doesn't speak it very well, is a pretty damn good way of screwing with that. 
It's also about as close, because this is a pet peeve of mine after being on the receiving end of it in a game. It's also the closest to a language barrier that I would like to see in a game as well. Having, it's almost going back to, I think Paul mentioned it in an episode once, that Event Horizon moment of, was that well, Liberate Me or was it Liberate Tuta Me? That giving a bit of ambiguity, that's a good thing. They can comprehend it even mm. better. It's the point where they then go, sorry, we can't understand a word of it. And that's where it would I would say, no, no, you've got to get some meaning across. Oh, I don't know. I, I think you could have quite a lot of fun with that. Because I mean, let's say that you've got an NPC who desperately needs to convey something horrible that's going to happen, but they don't share a language. He or she is going to resort to you know sign language, scrawling sigils in the uh, the, the sand. Shooting uh, the PCs. It's going to become a game of Cthulhu Mythos Pictionary <laughs> as it kind of draws this thing. I had the experience some years back of staying in a hotel in the countryside not too far from Zurich. I thought when I went there that, yeah, even if I couldn't get by with English, you know, this is Switzerland, that perhaps I'd be able to communicate in French with some of the people there. None of the people in the hotel spoke anything other than Swiss German, which I don't speak a word of. So during the time that I was there... I relied an awful lot on sign language and sort of pointing at things and so on to communicate with people. And suddenly, even ordering th doing things like ordering a meal became an adventure. You know, I had the chef come out from the kitchen, running up and down the aisles in the kitchen with his fingers on his head going, moo, to indicate certain <laughs> things on the menu, for example. And um, <laughs> yeah, it, it <laughs> bringing something like that into a game where, you know, you're not just trying to point out what the beef item is on the menu, but this is suddenly a matter of life and death with things that wouldn't fit normally into language anyway. Fuck me, that's going to be scary. <laughs> you have to have to stake or the world will end. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and all those pages that blew out of uh, Zahn's window that he'd written his, uh, his story on, yeah, there was this big void out there, but are they all sucked into the void? Maybe some of those are blown back over the roof of oh, the house, God, back yeah. down into town, you know, and you're walking around... Paris one day, maybe in the modern day, and uh, you know you buy a newspaper and uh, you look down. There's this bit of paper down on the floor. It's got some old writing on it, and you bend down, and it's a one of those sheets of paper. Yeah, it's torn, it's scuffed. Some of the words are unreadable. It's just one word out of the, or you know, one page out of the twenty or so. It's not written in very good French, but you can sort of get some of the meaning there. Yeah, but you'll never get the whole picture. And now for our final thoughts on the story. So I think we're all agreed this is one of our favourites. It packs a punch. Yep, it's short, it's focused, it's intense. But yeah, it throughout resists Lovecraft's normal urge to over-explain things. Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity still. And even some of those passages like the the really intense opening line, the intense description of what you see through that window. Some of my favourite passages in Lovecraft overall. It captures the feel of cosmic horror, of this unknowable void, and this what what is it doing to this guy and why is he responding as he is? There's a sense of wonder in it. Great story. I think we're all, <laughs> for once we're all agreed. <laughs> so we'll put a link to the where you can find the text to this one. Uh, online because like all the Lovecraft stuff it's freely available to read The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show 
The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. A few weeks ago, we announced that it was going to be the cutoff for people who back us on Patreon to get their copy of the first issue of the Blasphemous Tome. Now, this has led to something of a flurry of backers uh, joining us. And, you know, we are... <laughs> we, we are really quite overwhelmed at how generous you people have been. I, th- this has been beyond our wildest expectations. Um, so thank you to each and every one of you. And we have a lot of personal thanks to give now. First on the list, we want to say thank you for the donation from our friends at the Miskatonic University Podcast. Oh, excellent. Hey. Well, well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Murph. Thank you, Chad. And thank you, John. That's a lot of names to remember. I'm just going to say, thank you, MU. (laughs) Go Pods. Go Pods. (laughs) And thank you very much to David Keyes. Indeed. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, David. I'll apologise in advance for my probably wildly wrong pronunciation here. But thank you to Ralph Sandfuchs. Thank you very much, Ralph. Thank you, Ralph. Yes, thank you very much, Ralph. And thank you to Ronan Kennedy. Thank you very much, Ronan. Indeed. Thank you, Ronan. Another familiar name. Thank you very much, Christopher Smith-Adair. Indeed. Thank you very much, Christopher. Thanks, Christopher. And also, thank you very much to Adrian Validis. Thank you very much, Adrian. Thank you, Adrian. Yes, thank you, Adrian. And thank you to Thomas Cromker. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Yes, thank you very much, Thomas. Yeah, thank you, Thomas. And thank you and cheers to Lee Carnell. Thank you, Lee. Cheers. Thank you, Lee. Cheers, Lee. And also, cheers to Michael Angstrom. Cheers, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, Michael. And thank you to Ethan Cordray. Cheers, Ethan. Thank you and cheers, Ethan. Cheers. Thank you and cheers to Marco Goebel. Cheers, Marco. Cheers, Marco. Oh, and now the singing starts. Dear God, the singing. Don't draw your curtains while we're doing this, Paul. The curtains, they are drawn, Scott. I'm not sure what's beyond them. Shall I have a look? No. I can hear something outside. Let me just go and take a look. It's Sainsbury's. You know it's Sainsbury's. Leave it alone. You want to just explain what's going on here, Scott? Because we might have new listeners who haven't experienced this horror before. So what happens is if someone is generous enough to uh, to pledge $5 per episode through Patreon, we literally sing their praises. And that's what we're about to do. I mean, we call it singing in the same way that Eric Zan called what he did playing. But... I think yeah. he was probably more musical than we are, to be fair. Yeah, but... He didn't do it in hip-hop. <laughs> we are not doing fucking hip-hop again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the death metal ukulele. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Michael, Michael, Michael. Back, back, back.
Good lord, that was a lot of singing. There was a lot of takes that went into doing them. Oh, oh god, and they still sounded that bad. <laughs> yeah, the scary thing, if you're listening to the edited version of this, which you probably are, well, I hope they are, <laughs> is that however bad what you just heard sounded, that was the best version we had. <laughs> well, that's been a, a packed show full of the music of Eric Zahn. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a short episode because it's a short story, but apparently we talk a lot. Who would have thought? Join us again in a fortnight, and we're going to be talking about styles of play in Call of Cthulhu with our special guest, Mr. Michael Mason. Good stuff. Indeed, yeah, looking forward to it. But until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.